Section 14 of Mind Amongst the Spindles, edited by Charles Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Leisure Hours of the Mill Girls The leisure hours of the mill girls, how shall they be spent? As Anne, Bertha, Charlotte, Emily, and others have spent theirs, as we spend ours, let us decide. Number four was to stop a day for repairs. Anne sat at her window until she was tired of watching passers-by. She then started up in search of one as idle as herself, a companion in a saunter. She called at the chamber opposite her own. The room was sadly disordered. The bed was not made, although it was past nine o'clock. In making choice of dresses, collars, aprons, pro tempora, some half of dozen of each had been taken from their places, and there they were, lying about on chairs, trunks, and bed, together with the mill-clothes just taken off. Bertha had not combed her hair, but Charlotte gave hers a hasty dressing, before going out shopping, and there lay brush, combs, and hair on the table. There were a few pictures hanging about the walls, such as You Are the Prettiest Rose, The Kiss, Man Friday, and a miserable, soiled drawing of a cottage girl. Bertha blushed when Anne entered, she was evidently ashamed of the state of her room, and vexed at Anne's intrusion. Anne understood the reason when Bertha told her, with a sigh, that she had been hurrying all the morning to get through the children of the abbey before Charlotte returned. "'Anne, I wish you would talk to her,' said she. "'Her folks are very poor. I have it on the best authority. Alinda told me that it was confidently reported by girls who came from the same town that her folks had been known to jump for joy at the sight of a crust of bread. She spends every cent of her wages for dress and confectionery. She has gone out now, and she will come back with lemons, sugar, rich cake, and so on. She had better do as I do, spend her money for books and her leisure time in reading them. I buy three volumes of novels every month, and when that is not enough, I take some from the circulating library. I think it our duty to improve our mind as much as possible, now the mill-girls are beginning to be thought so much of. Anne was a bit of a wag. Idle as a breeze, like a breeze she sported with every trifling thing that came her way. Shh, said she, and so we must begin to read silly novels, to be very sentimental, talk about tears and flowers, dews and bowers. There is some poetry for you, Bertha. Don't you think I'd better astonish the natives by writing a poetical rhapsody, nicknamed twilight reverie, or some other silly, inappropriate thing, and sending it to the offering. Oh, how fine this would be! Then I could purchase a few novels, borrow a few more, take a few more from the circulating library, and shed tears and grow soft over them. All because we are taking a higher stand in the world, you know, Bertha. Bertha again blushed. Anne remained some moments silent. Did you ever read Pelham? asked Bertha, by way of breaking the silence. No, I read no novels, good, bad, or indifferent. I've been thinking, Bertha, that there may be a danger of our running away from the reputation we enjoy as a class. For my part, I shan't ape the follies of other classes of females. As Isabel Greenwood says, and you know she is always right about such things, I think we shall lose our independence, originality, and individuality of character, if we all take one standard of excellence and this the customs and opinions of others. This is a jaw-cracking sentence for me. If anybody had uttered it but Isabel, 
I should, perhaps, have laughed at it. As it was, I treasured it up for use, as I do the wise sayings of Franklin, Dudley, Levitt, and Robert Thomas. I, for one, shall not attempt to become so accomplished. I shall do as near right as I can conveniently, not because I have a heavy burden of gentility to support, but because it is quite as easy to do right, and then I sleep so sweet at night. Good morning, Bertha. At the door she met Charlotte, on her return, with lemons, nuts, and cake. I am in search of a companion for a long ramble, said Anne. Can you recommend a subject? I should think Bertha would like to shake herself, said Charlotte. She has been buried in a novel ever since she was out of bed this morning. It was her turn to do the chamber work this morning, and this is the way she always does, if she can get a novel. She would not mind sitting all day, with dirt to her head. It is a shame for her to do so. She had better be wide awake, enjoying life, as I am. Nonsense, exclaimed Anne, in her usual brusque manner. There's not a sense choice between you this morning. Both are doing wrong, and each condemning the other without mercy. So far you are both just like me, you see. Good morning. She walked on to the next chamber. She had enough of the philosopher about her to reason from appearances, and from the occupation of its inmates, that she could succeed no better there. Everything was in the most perfect order. The bed was shaped, and the sheet hemmed down just so. Their lines that hung by the walls were filled gist. First came starched aprons, then starched capes, then pocket-handkerchiefs folded with the marked corner out, then hose. This room, likewise, had its paintings, and like those of the other, they were in perfect keeping with the general arrangements of the room and the dress of its occupants. There was an apology for a lady. Her aptitude and form were precisely that uncouth kind which is produced by youthful artificers, who form head, body, and feet from one piece of shingle, and wedge in two sticks at right angles with the body for arms. Her sleeves increased in dimensions from the shoulders and the skirt from the belt, but without the semblance of a fold. This, with some other of the same school, and two profiles, were carefully preserved in frames, and the frames in screens of green barrage. Miss Clark was busy engaged in making netting, Miss Emily in making a dress. Anne made known her wants to them, more from curiosity to hear their reply than from a hope of success. In measured periods they thanked her, would have been happy to accompany her. But really, I must be excused, said Miss Clark. I have given myself a stint, and I always feel bad if I fall an inch short of my plans. Yes, don't you think, Anne, said Emily, she has stinted herself to make five yards of netting today, and Mother says there's ten times as much in the house as we shall ever need. Father says there's twenty times as much, for he knows we shall both be old maids. <laughs> yes, and I always tell him that if I am an old maid I shall need the more. Our folks make twenty or thirty yards of table linen every year. I mean to make fringe for every yard, and have enough laid by for the next ten years, before I leave the mill. Well, Emily, said Anne, you have no fringe to make. Can you accompany me? I should be glad to, Anne, but I am over head and ears in work. I have got my work all done up, everything I could find to do. Now I am making a dress for Bertha. Why, Emily, you are making such a slave of yourself, body and mind, said Anne. Can't you earn enough at the mill to afford yourself a little time for rest and amusement? La, I don't make but twenty dollars a month, besides my board. 
I have made a great many dresses evenings, and have stinted myself to finish this to-day. So I believe I can't go, anyway. I should be terrible glad to. Oh, you are very inexcusable, answered Anne. But let me ask you if you take any time to read. No, not much. We can't afford to. Father owns the best farm in Bert, but we have always had to work hard, and always expect to. We generally read a chapter every day. We take turns about it. One of us reads while the other works. Yes, but lately we have only taken time to read a short psalm, said Emily, laughing again. Well, the Bible says, Let him that is without sin cast the first stone, or I might be tempted to remind you that there is such a thing as laboring too much for the meat that perisheth. Good morning, ladies. Anne heard a loud, merry laugh from the next room as she reached the door. It was Eleanor Frothingham's, no one could mistake, who had heard it once. It seemed the outpouring of glee that could no longer be suppressed. Eleanor sat on the floor, just as she had thrown herself on her return from a walk. Her pretty little bonnet was lying on the floor on one side, and on the other a traveling bag, whose contents she had just poured into her lap. There were apples, pears, melons, a mock orange, a pumpkin, squash, and crooked cucumber. Eleanor sprang to her feet when Anne entered, and threw the contents of her lap on the floor with such violence as to set them to rolling all about. Then she laughed and clapped her hands to see the squash chase the mock orange under the bed, a great russet running so furiously after a little fellow of the Baldwin family, and finally pinning him in a corner. A pear started in the chase, but after taking a few turns, he sat himself down to shake his fat sides and enjoy the scene. Eleanor stepped back a few paces to elude the pursuit of the pumpkin, and then, with well-feigned terror, jumped into a chair. But the drollest personage of the group was the ugly cucumber. There he sat, forminious-like, watching the mad freaks of his companions. "'Ha! See that cucumber!' exclaimed Eleanor, laughing heartily. "'If he had hands, how he would raise them so! If he had eyes and mouth, how he would open them so!' suiting her action to her words. "'Look, Anne, look, Fanny, see if it does not look like the Clark girls when one leaves anything in the shape of dirt on their table or stand.' Peace was at length restored among the inanimates. "'I came to invite you for a walk, but I find I am too late,' said Anne. "'Yes, oh, how I wish you would have been with us. You would have been so happy,' said Eleanor. "'We started out very early, before sunrise,' intending to take a brisk walk of a mile or two, and return in season for breakfast. We went over to Dracut, and met such adventure there, and by the way, as will supply me with food for laughter years after I get married, and trouble comes. We came along where some oxen were standing, yoked, eating their breakfast while their owner was eating his. They were attached to a cart filled with pumpkins. I took some of the smallest, greenest ones, and stuck them fast on the tips of the oxen's horns, I was so interested in observing how the ceremony affected the Messrs. Oxen that I did not laugh a bit until I had crowned all four of them. I looked up to Fanny as I finished the work, and there she sat on a great rock, where she had thrown herself when she could no longer stand. Poor girl! Tears were streaming down her cheeks. With one hand she was holding her lame side, and with the other filling her mouth with her pocket handkerchief, so that the laugh need not run out, I suppose. Well, as soon as I looked at her and the oxen, I burst into a laugh that might have been heard miles, I fancy. Oh, I shall never forget how reprovingly those oxen looked at me. 
The poor creatures could not eat with such an unusual weight on their horns, so they pitched their heads higher than usual, and now and then gave them a graceful cant, then stood entirely motionless, as if attempting to conjecture what it all meant. Well, that loud and long laugh of mine brought a whole valley of folks to the door, farmer and farmer's wife, farmer's sons and farmer's daughters. "'Woah hish!' exclaimed the farmer, before he reached the door, and "Woah hish!' echoed all the farmer's sons. They all stopped as soon as they saw me. I would remind you that I still stood before the oxen, laughing at them. I never saw such comical expressions as those people wore. Did you, Fan? Even those pictures of mine are not so funny. I thought we should raise the city police, for they had tremendous voices, and I never saw anybody laugh so. As soon as I could speak, and they could listen to me, I walked up to the farmer. I beg your pardon, sir, I said, but I did want to laugh so, came all the way from Lowell for something new to laugh at. He was a good, sensible man, and this proves it. He said it was a good thing to have a hearty laugh occasionally, good for the health and spirits. Work would go off easier all day for it, especially with the boys. As he said boys, I could not avoid smiling, as I looked at a fine young sprig of a farmer, his oldest son, as afterwards he told us, full twenty-one. And now, Miss Eleonora, said Fanny, I shall avenge myself on you for certain saucy freaks, perpetrated against my most august commands, by telling Anne that as you looked at this young sprig of a farmer, he looked at you, and you both blushed. What made you, Nora? I never saw you blush before. What made you, Nora? echoed Eleonora, laughing and blushing slightly. Well, the farmer's wife invited us to rest and breakfast with them. We began to make excuses, but the farmer added his good-natured commands, so we went in, and after a few arrangements, such as placing more plates, etc., a huge pumpkin pie, and some hot potatoes, peeled in the cooking, we sat down to a full round table. There was the mealy potatoes, cold boiled dish, warm biscuits and doughnuts, pie, coffee, pickles, sauce, cheese, and just such butter and brown bread as mother makes, bread hot, just taken from the oven. They all appeared so pleasant and kind that I felt as if in my own home, with my own family around me. Wild as I was, I soon began to tell them how it seemed to me. I burst into tears in spite of myself, and was obliged to leave the table. But they all pitied me so much, that I brushed off my tears, went back to my breakfast, and have laughed ever since. "'You have forgotten two very important items,' said Fanny, looking archly into Eleanor's face. This fine young spring of a farmer happened to recollect that he had business in town to-day, so he took their carriage and brought us home.' after Nora and a roguish sister of his had filled her bag, as you see. And more and better still, they invited us to spend a day with them soon, and promised to send this fine young sprig, etc., for us on the occasion. Eleanor was too busily engaged in collecting her fruit to reply. She ran from the room, and in a few moments returned with several young girls, to whom she gave generous supplies of apples, pears, and melons. She was about seating herself with a full plate, when a new idea seemed to flash upon her. She laughed and started for the door. "'Eleonora, where now?' asked Fanny. "'To the Clark girls' room, to leave an apple peeling and core on their table, a pear peeling on their stand, and melon, apple, and pear seeds all about the floor,' answered Eleonora, gaily snapping her fingers and nodding her head. "'What for? Here, Nora, 
Come back. For what? Why, to see them suffer, said the incorrigible girl. You know I told you this morning that sport is to be the order of the day, so no scoldings, my dear. She left the room, and Fanny turned to one of the young ladies who had just entered. Where's Alice? said she. Did Eleanora extend an invitation to her? Yes, but she is half dead with the blues today. The brown girls came back last night. They called on Alice this morning, and left letters and presents from home for her. She had a letter from her little brother, ten years old. He must be a fine fellow, judging from that letter. It was so sensible, and so witty, too. One moment I laughed at some of his lively expressions, and the next cried at his expressions of love for Alice, and regret for her loss. He told her how he cried himself to sleep the night after she left home, and his flowers seemed to have faded, and the stars to have lost their brightness, when he no longer had her by his side to talk to him about them. I find by his letter that Alice is working to keep him at school. That part of it which contained his thanks for her goodness was blistered with the little fellow's tears. Alice cried like a child when she read it, and I did not wonder at it. But she ought to be happy now. Her mother sent her a fine pair of worsted hose in her own spinning and knitting, and a nice cake of her own making. She wrote that, trifling as these presents were, she knew they would be acceptable to her daughter, because made by her. When Alice read this, she cried again. Her sister sent her a pretty little fancy basket, and her brother a bunch of flowers from her mother's garden. They were enclosed in a tight tin box, and were as fresh as when first gathered. Alice sent out for a new vase. She has filled it with her flowers, and will keep them watered with her tears. Judging from present appearances, Alice is a good-hearted girl, and I love her, but she is always talking or thinking of something to make her unhappy. A letter from a friend, containing nothing but good news and assurances of friendship, that ought to make her happy, generally throws her into a crying fit, which ends in a moping fit of melancholy. This destroys her own happiness, and that of all around her. "'You ought to talk to her. She is spoiling herself,' said Mary Mason, whose mouth was literally crammed with the last apple of a second plateful. "'I have often urged her to be more cheerful,' But she answers me with a helpless, hopeless, I can't, Jane, you know I can't. I shall never be happy while I live, and I often think that the sooner I go, where the weary are at rest, the better. I don't know how many times she has given me an answer like this. Then she will sob as if her heart was bursting. She sometimes wears me quite out, and I feel as I did when Eleonora called me, as if released from a prison. Would it improve her spirits to walk with me? said Anne. Perhaps it would, if you could persuade her to go. Do try, dear Anne, answered Jane. I called at Isabel Greenwood's room as I came along, and asked her to go in and see if she could rouse her up. Anne heard Isabel's voice in gentle but earnest expostulation as she reached Alice's room. Isabel paused when Anne entered, kissed her cheek, and resigned her rocking chair to her. Alice was sobbing too violently to speak. She took her face from her handkerchief, bowed to Anne, and again buried it. Anne invited them to walk with her. Isabel cheerfully acceded to her proposal, and urged Alice to accompany them. "'Don't urge me, Isabel,' said Alice. "'I am only fit for the solitude of my chamber. I could not add at all to your pleasure. My thoughts would be at my home, and I could not enjoy a walk in the least degree. But, Isabel, I do not want you to leave me so—' I know that you think me very foolish to indulge in these useless regrets, as you call them. 
You will understand me better if you just consider the situation of my mother's family. My mother a widow, my oldest brother at the West, my oldest sister settled in New York, my youngest brother and sister only with mother, and I a Lowell factory girl. And such I must be, for if I leave the mill my brother cannot attend school all the time, and his heart would almost break to take him from school. And how can I be happy in such a situation? I do not ask for riches, but I would be able to gather my friends all about me. Then I could be happy. Perhaps I am as happy now as you would be in my situation, Isabel. Isabel's eyes filled, but she answered in her own sweet, calm manner. We will compare lots, my dear Alice. I have neither father, mother, sister, nor home in the world. Three years ago I had all of these, and every other blessing that one could ask. The death of my friends, the distressing circumstances attending them, the subsequent loss of our large property, and the critical state of my brother's health at present, are not slight affections, nor are they lightly felt. Isabel's emotions, as she paused to subdue them by a powerful mental effort, proved her assertion. Alice began to dry her tears, and to look as if ashamed of her weakness. "'I, too, am a Lowell factory girl,' pursued Isabel. "'I, too, am laboring for the completion of a brother's education. If that brother were well, how gladly I would toil. But the disease is upon his vitals which laid father, mother, and sister in their graves in one short year. I can see it in the unnatural and increasing brightness of his eye, and hear it in his hollow cough. He has entered upon his third collegiate year, and is too anxious to graduate next commencement, to heed my entreaties, or the warning of his physician. She again paused. Her whole frame shook with emotion, but not a tear mingled with Anne's, as they fell upon her hand. "'You see, Alice,' she at length added, "'what reasons I have for regret when I think of the past, and what for fear when I turn to the future. Still I am happy,' almost continually. My lost friends are so many magnets, drawing heavenward those affections that would otherwise rivet themselves too strongly to earthly loves. And those dear ones, who are yet spared to me, scatter so many flowers in my pathway, that I seldom feel the thorns. I am cheered in my darkest hours by their kindness and affection, animated at all times by a wish to do all in my power to make them happy. If my brother is spared to me, I ask for nothing more, and if he is first called, I trust I shall feel that is the will of one who is too wise to err, and too good to be unkind. "'You are the most like my mother, Isabel, of any one I ever saw,' said Anne. "'She is never free from pain, and yet she never complains. And if Pa, or any of us, just have a cold or headache, she does not rest till she makes us well. You have more trouble than any girl in the house, but instead of claiming the sympathies of everyone on that account, you are always cheering others in their half-imaginary trials. Alice, I think you and I ought to be ashamed to shed a tear until we have some greater cause than mere homesickness or low spirits. Why, Anne, I can no more avoid low spirits than I can make a world, exclaimed Alice in a really aggrieved tone. And I don't want you all to think that I have no trouble. I want sympathy, and I can't live without it. Oh, that I was home at this moment! Why, Alice, there is hardly a girl in this house who has not had as much trouble, in some shape, as you have. You never think of pitying them. And pray what gives you such strong claims on their sympathies? Do you walk with us, or do you not? 
Alice shook her head in reply. Isabel whispered a few words in her ear. They might be of reproof, they might be of consolation, then retired with Anne to equip for their walk. "'What a beautiful morning this is!' exclaimed Anne, as they emerged from the house. "'Malgra some inconveniences. Factory girls are as happy as any class of females. I sometimes think it hard to rise so early, and work so many hours shut up in the house, but when I get out at night, on the Sabbath, or any other time, I am just as happy as a bird, and I long to fly and sing with them. And Alice will keep herself shut up all day. Is it not strange that all will not be as happy as they can be? It is so pleasant. Isabel returned Anne's smile. Yes, Anne, it is strange that everyone does not prefer happiness. Indeed, it is quite probable that everyone does prefer it, but some mistake the modes of acquiring it through want of judgment. Others are too indolent to employ the means necessary to its attainment, and appear to expect it to flow into them, without taking any plans to prepare a channel. Others, like our friend Alice, have constitutional infirmities, which entail upon them a deal of suffering, that to us, of different mental organization, appears wholly unnecessary. Why, don't you think Alice might be as happy as we are, if she chose? Could she not be as grateful for letters and love tokens from home? Could she not leave her room, and come out into this pure air, listen to the birds, and catch their spirit? Could she not do all this, Isabel, as well as we? Well, I do not know, Anne. Perhaps not. You know that the minds of different persons are like instruments of different tones. The same touch trills gaily on one, mournfully on another. Yes, and I know, Isabel, that different minds may be compared to the same instrument, in and out of tune. Now I have heard Alice say that she loved to indulge this melancholy, that she loved to read Byron, Mrs. Hemans, and Miss Landon, until her heart was as gloomy as the grave. Isn't this strange? even silly. It is most unfortunate, Anne. Isabel, you are the strangest girl. I have heard a great many say that one cannot make you say anything against anybody, and I believe they are correct. And when you reprove one, you do it in such a mild, pretty way that one only loves you the better for it. Now, I smash on, pell-mell, as if unconscious of any fault in myself. Hence, I oftener offend than amend." Let me think. This morning I have administered reproof in my own blunt way to Bertha for reading novels, to Charlotte for eating confectionery, to the Clark girls for their all-work-and-no-play, and to Alice for moping. I have been wondering all along how they can spend their time so foolishly. I see that my own employment would scarcely bear the test of close criticism, for I have been watching motes in others' eyes while a beam was in my own. Now, Isabel, I must ask a favor. I do not want to be very fine and nice, but I would be gentle and kind-hearted, would do some good in the world. I often make attempts to this end, but always fail, somehow. I know my manner needs correcting, and I want you to reprove me as you would a sister, and assist me with your advice. Will you not, dear Isabel? She pressed Isabel's arm closer to her side, and a tear was in her eye as she looked up for an answer to her appeal. "'You know not what you ask, my beloved girl,' answered Isabel, in a low, tremulous tone. "'You know not the weakness of the staff on which you would lean, "'or the frailties of the heart to which you would look up for aid. "'Of myself, dear Anne, I can do nothing. "'I can only look to God for protection from temptation, 
and for guidance in the right way. When he keeps me, I am safe. When he withdraws his spirit, I am weak indeed. And can I lead you, Anne? No. You must go to a higher than earthly friend. Pray to him in every hour of need, and he will be more to you than you can ask or even think. How often I have wished that I could go to him as mother does, just as I would go to a father, said Anne. But I dare not. It would be a mockery in one who has never experienced religion. Make prayer a means of this experience, my dear girl. Draw near to God by humble, constant prayer, and he will draw near to you by the influences of his spirit, which will make you just what you wish to be, a good, kind-hearted girl. You will learn to love God as a father, as the author of your happiness and every good thing, and you will be prepared to meet those trials which must be yours in life as the chastisements of a father's hand, directed by a father's love. And when the hour of death comes, dear Anne, how sweet, how soothing will be the deep-felt conviction that you are going home. You will have no fears, for your trust will be in one whom you have long loved and served, and you will feel as if about to meet your best and most familiar friend. Anne answered only by her tears, and for some minutes they walked on in silence. They were now some distance from town. Before them lay farms, farmhouses, groves, and scattering trees, from whose branches came the mingled song of a thousand birds. Isabel directed Anne's attention to the beauty of the scene. Anne loved nature, but she had such a dread of sentimentalism that she seldom expressed herself freely. Now she had no reserves, and Isabel found that she had not mistaken her capacities in supposing her possessed of faculties which had only to develop themselves more fully, which had only to become constant incentives to action to make her all she could wish. "'You did not promise, Isabel,' said Anne, with a happy smile as they entered their street. "'You did not promise to be my sister. But you will, will you not?' "'Yes, dear Anne, we will be sisters to each other. I think you told me that you have no sister.' "'I had none until now, and I have felt as if part of my affections could not find a resting place, but were weighing down my heart with a burden that did not belong to it. I shall no longer be like a branch of our woodbine, when it cannot find a clinging place, swaying about at the mercy of every breeze, but like that when some kind hand twines it about its frame, firm and trusting. See, Isabel, she exclaimed, interrupting herself, there sits poor Alice, just as we left her. I wish she had walked with us. She would have felt so much better. Do you think, Isabel, that religion would make her happy? Most certainly. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly on heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, is as faithful a saying, and as worthy of all acceptation, now as when it was uttered, and when thousands came and were healed of all manner of diseases. Yes, Alice may yet be happy, she added musingly, if she can be induced to read Byron less and her Bible more, to think less of her own gratification and more of that of others, and we shall be very gentle to her, Anne, but not the less faithful and constant in our efforts to win her to usefulness and happiness. Eleonora met them at the door and began to describe a frolic that had occupied her during their absence. She threw her arms around Isabel's waist and entered the sitting-room with her. Now, Isabel, I know you don't think it right to be so giddy, said she. I will tell you what I have resolved to do. 
You shake your head, Isabel, and I do not wonder at all. But this resolution was formed this morning, on my way back from Dracut, and I feel in my heart of hearts a sober certainty of waking energy to keep it unbroken. It is that I will be another sort of a girl, altogether henceforth. Steady, but not gloomy. Less talkative, but not reserved. More studious, but not a bookworm. Kind and gentle to others, but not a whit the less independent, for a that in my opinion and conduct. And, after this day, which I have dedicated to Momus, I want you to be my mentor. Now, I am for another spree of some sort. Nay, Isabel, do not remonstrate. You will make me weep with five tender words. It needed not so much, for Isabel smiled sadly, kissed her cheek, and Eleanor's tears fell fast and thick as she ran from the room. Anne went immediately to Alice's room. She apologized to her for reproving her so roughly, described her walk, gave a synopsis of Isabel's advice, and her consequent determinations. By this she diverted Alice's thoughts from herself, gave her nerves a healthy spring, and when the bell summoned them to dinner, she had recovered much of her happier humor. Eleanor sat beside her at table. She laughingly proposed an exchange, offering a portion of her levity for as much of her gravity. She thought the equilibrium would be more perfect. So Alice thought, and she heartily wished that the exchange might be made. And this exchange seems actually taking place at this time. They are as intimate as sisters. Together they are resolutely struggling against the tide of habit. They meet many discouraging failures, but Isabel is ever ready to cheer them by her sympathy and to assist them by her advice. Anne's faults were not so deeply rooted. Perhaps she brought more natural energy to their extermination. Be that as it may, she is now an excellent lady, a fit companion for the peerless Isabel. The Clark girls do not, as yet, coalesce in their system of improvement. They still prefer making netting and dresses to the lecture-room, the improvement circle, and even to the reading of the book of books. So difficult is it to turn from the worship of Plutus. The delusion of Bertha and Charlotte is partially broken. Bertha is beginning to understand that much reading does not naturally result in intellect or moral improvement, unless it be well regulated. Charlotte is learning that to enjoy is to obey, and that to pamper her own animal appetites, while her father and mother are suffering for want of the necessaries of life, is not in obedience to divine command. And, dear sisters, how is it with each one of us? How do we spend our leisure hours? Now, in the stilly hour of night, let us pause and give our consciences time to render faithful answers. D. End of section 14.